Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a 10-part series in which I talk to founders about the challenges of growing a business. John Stapleton is a serial entrepreneur who is best known in Britain as co-founder of the new Covent Garden Soup Company, which pioneered the concept of selling fresh soup in a carton. A decade later, he sold the business in order to start a new venture, but found that selling fresh food in the US was a much harder proposition. We were always going to sell the business. In fact, all three businesses that I've been involved with and I've set up with a co-founder in each case, we've always intended to move it on, get rid of it, sell it on at the right time. That hasn't been the burning ambition, but it was always the plan. So with New Covent Garden Soup Company, we set it up in 1987 and we eventually got around to selling it in 1998. The plan was to sell it when we thought the time was right. And the time is right is defined by who wants to buy it, not by us. So what told you we've got to do it? We felt the time was right to sell, given that we were involved for 10 years. Given that we had learned a hell of a lot about it, we didn't necessarily know what was coming around the corner. And also, I think the key point was export. Do we export or do we not? We had taken the product through the UK, taken it to Ireland, and we were in a number of select stores in Belgium, Holland, France. And the question for us was, do we now expand dramatically across Europe? And we were unsure as to whether we should or should we leverage that and say to somebody, come in and do this, take this over, given your international marketing experience, of which we had none, and take it on to the next stage. And then we could more or less, as the argument went, sell for tomorrow's price today because people or somebody would see the value in picking up New Covent Garden at that stage. You then went on to that second business, trying to take that concept into the US. What was the crossover between the New Covent Garden soup company and setting up in the US? What happened was 1996, 1997, I was spending half of my time doing some really critical stuff in terms of working with the team to sell New Covent Garden Soup Company. At the same time, I was doing some really critical stuff to set up the business in the States. So there was an overlap. What I wanted to do was take the concept to the States and operate the business in the context of where we could bring fresh soup to the market in the States, but do it in a way that was suitable for the American market. We learned a lot about the business and about the marketplace, about the environment of what we needed to change in the US. And we also were selling the business to the ultimate buyers, Daniels, in the UK. And that then gave me kind of a, a springboard to move across, which is kind of unusual. I think normally you don't start a new chapter until you end very, very clearly the previous one. But for me, it worked out that way. And while it was a crazy year, it was a very enjoyable year. And before I knew it, I was in California. We're making fresh soup out there. Which proved difficult. Yeah. What happened? It proved difficult for a number of different reasons. And um, somebody once said, I think it was Mark Twain, said that you know the US and the UK are two countries divided by a common language. And I didn't realize how true it was until we did it. We did a lot of market research. We spent a lot of time. We flew soup across the Atlantic and sold it on the East Coast and on the West Coast for a few months, just on a very pilot scale to find out what the differences were. Mostly the differences were in relation to flavor compositions. And even between the East Coast and the West Coast, there were differences. What we did there was ex the same to a certain extent as we did in the UK, and we built a factory. 
we had to get new technology to extend the shelf life because it was important to have longer life because the US consumer is used to longer life. They have bigger refrigerators. They shop once every two weeks or so. And they are quite happy with having a fresh product with, believe it or not, 55 days shelf life on it. Now, that doesn't work here. People think with 20 days or 15 days even, that can't be fresh. However, we were looking at a fresh product and we weren't putting any additives into it. So we really had to design a whole new process to get it to 55 days. So in the US, we got all those things right. But in essence, the two big differences between the US and the UK is that the consumer has a different combination of, if you like, uh, price, quality and convenience in their head than we do in the UK. They are much more focused on convenience. They also like quality, of course, and they're willing to pay for convenience more so than quality. And then the second point was it was very difficult to distribute the product on a national basis, chilled across the US. There is no national chilled distribution system, certainly not then is local and regional maybe, but if you're manufacturing as we were in California and wanting to supply, maybe you get away with it as far as Chicago, but all the way across the East Coast, you don't really have the types of systems that have been developed over many years and many decades here in the UK. Okay, the UK is a smaller physical country, but the retailers here in the UK have developed logistics systems which are very efficient at moving product around with very short shelf life. Long story short, it didn't work for pretty much those reasons and we weren't able to make enough inroads into achieving our goals as quickly as we wanted to. How do you move on from that situation? In the end, we had to just take the difficult decision to shut the operation down, which was a real heartbreak, really, for everybody who was involved. I had gone out there, of course, but other people have put a lot of effort into it and we had invested a lot of money in it and the operation didn't work. If you say New Covent Garden Soup Company was a success, and it was, then Glencoe Foods, as we called it, was not a success, it was a failure. But, you know, you really have to figure out the reasons why and you have to look at yourself and to be really clear what did go wrong, learn from those mistakes, take it forward so you don't make those mistakes again and look to the future. I look at it as dealing with adversity. Because with New Common Garden Soup Company, the experience was very, very positive in the main. But you're never absolutely sure or put your finger on what made it work. A combination of factors usually is the answer. But you never really tell because things move at such a rapid pace. If something goes wrong, like Lenko did on a larger scale, then you can say, okay, let's figure out what went wrong and we can take that forward, but deal with it. I think that's the message. Deal with it as best you can. And I actually quite like when I'm looking at CVs of potential people that are coming to work for my business or other businesses that I help with now, it's always useful to look at a failure or something that hasn't worked out and ask the candidate, what did you learn from that? Because I think that's a very strong opportunity to learn and move forward and make you a stronger person. In the States, it was one of those kind of situations where we had to be honest with ourselves and just say, okay, we've tried pretty much everything we can. You know, to a certain extent, people were saying, you're ahead of your time with doing this. Fresh soup in the States, okay, but the implementation, people aren't ready for it for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I think you just have to say, can we, in all honesty, ask our shareholders to put more money into this because we now know exactly what to do to get it right? And we didn't feel we could, in all honesty, do that. Your third venture, Little Dish, you're still in food, but it's in a children's market and ready foods. How did that come about? Basically, it was way back in 2006, and I had come back from the States a couple of years prior to that, and I was looking at what to do next. I had no kind of obvious plan. I was living in Germany. I still live in Germany. My wife is German, and we had come back from the States together, and the whole idea was that we were going to live in Germany. But all my contacts were either in the States or the UK, so I kept being drawn back to either the States or the UK. And it was around about the time when Jamie Oliver was making his first crusade, if you remember, back in 2005, 2006, about the state of the nation's health, in particular kids' meals and in particular kids' school dinners. Mm. It was very topical. So you'd have people sitting in pubs who didn't have kids themselves talking about kids' food. 
There was that backdrop. And at the same time, Hillary, my to-become business partner, had this idea and I had this idea simultaneously, completely unknown to each other. And then through serendipity, which is how these things always happen, the two of us met over lunch, meeting somebody else. And we thought there is an opportunity here. So we began to look at it more carefully. I guess it was to a certain extent similar to Newcombe Garden when we started out. It was like tripping over an opportunity and then looking at it carefully and thinking it should be a chilled, fresh, tasty product, which is ultra convenient for the mother and the father, but particularly the mother, to provide good quality food to their child from the age of one year up and not have all the hassle of making it from scratch themselves. Shamin Prashantham is an expert on business strategy at the China-Europe International Business School in Shanghai. I asked for his thoughts on exiting a business. When was the right time to go and how should an entrepreneur prepare? What entrepreneurs need to understand very clearly is that in order to achieve an exit, they need to be seen to have created long-term success prospects for their venture in terms of scope for scalability, and scope for profitable growth. But even in the cases where an entrepreneur has stayed on as CEO of the organization for a substantial period of time, they will have had to typically negotiate some form of exit for the early stage investors, typically through an IPO. I would also add that it is probably not the norm for the same individual to successfully lead a company to growth because the skills required to get a startup off the ground are quite different from what you need to manage the organization. In the case of the former, it is largely about perceiving opportunities and acting upon them. In the case of the latter, it is more about being efficient in how resources are managed. One of the most important things in general in entrepreneurship is developing effective teams. And what the research shows very clearly is that entrepreneurial ventures which have an effective team at the top as opposed to an individual calling all the shots has a much higher success rate in terms of both survival and growth. And now when a good team is built, you also potentially have a better opportunity to manage an orderly succession. And I think one of the advantages of a successful exit in many cases is an entrepreneur can take time off, you know, can afford to take time off. Of course, in some cases, immediately following an exit, an entrepreneur actually can remain quite busy. For instance, I know of several cases where a venture has been acquired by another company But a condition of the acquisition is that the CEO must remain in post for a couple of years to ensure that their knowledge and their expertise and contacts continue to benefit the firm. These sort of golden handcuffs can sometimes keep entrepreneurs extremely busy, even following an acquisition. But after that, entrepreneurs actually can afford, in many cases, to take the time off to reflect and think about what they truly want to do in the next innings. And I've seen some very interesting decisions being made by entrepreneurs. In some cases, entrepreneurs have decided to work in incubators and accelerators. In some cases, they have actually worked as entrepreneurs in residence within a university setting or in a venture capital firm. These days, there seem to be many opportunities for an entrepreneur to use their very valuable experience especially if they've had the good fortune of a successful exit. When the time came for John Stapleton to step back from his third business, he opted not to make a complete break, but to stay involved in an advisory capacity. 
I've pulled back to become non-executive director in my own business about two years ago now because I realized that I didn't really want to be waking up one day and it'd be 10 years in and I was living in Munich and working in London. I had done enough of that working Monday to Thursday in London and then flying home on a Thursday afternoon. So I really wanted to, I guess, for the first time ever, put the soft objective first of having a more sensible lifestyle and certainly more balanced lifestyle. So I decided that was the right thing for me to do a couple of years back. But I also decided, and we decided collectively, that it wasn't the right time to go selling Little Dish because we had a whole bunch of things we wanted to do. That's one of the entrepreneurial illnesses, I call it. If you ask an entrepreneur when is the right time to sell his business, they'll typically answer, not now, because we've got so many things we want to do. We've got so many opportunities. We've got so many things we haven't done properly, we we're going to do properly. But with Little Dish, it was the answer two years ago, and it's still the answer now. And we've got lots of exciting things that are going on. We just made a new venture out of Chilled for the first time into what we call ambient long life snacks for kids, healthy snacks for kids on the go. So I'm really enjoying contributing as a non-executive, which is very much in the background. And it's very much, you know, pull from the team rather than push from me. And I decided at the point when I wanted to pull back that I had to either pull back or not pull back. You can't half pull back in a situation like this. I think when you're bringing in a team or bringing in new people to run the business for you, you have to be able to give them the autonomy to get on with running the business. And if you bring somebody in and you're still there, you've probably brought the wrong person in because the person you want is somebody who doesn't want you there. They want to have the opportunity to stamp their authority on it and ask you to seek your advice, but on their terms. We're facing our own exit now, as this is the last episode in our current series of FT Startup Stories. You can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup, where you can also find links to FT articles on entrepreneurship and business education. You can also take up our offer of a 25% discount on a subscription to the Financial Times by going to ft.com forward slash startup offer. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.